Hello, and welcome to Girls Gone Canon Watches Succession, Season 4, Episode 6, Living Plus, featuring poor Quentin. I am one of your hosts, Chloe. And I guess that makes me poor Quentin by elimination. Emmett, also known as poor Quentin, you're a temporary other one of your hosts. Yes, the one with the E name. I fear that I've forgotten who she was. Who? Exactly, exactly. No, I'm just kidding. Eliana will return very soon. She is Carmen Sandiegoing it in her good outfit. Um, I was called out by her in my DMs the other day for saying, interesting, maybe she would look good in that Carmen Sandiego outfit. She was very content about you, though, Emmett, so good job. I'm the nice one. <laughs> that rarely happens. Very rarely, but she was very content. Very content. Uh, So Eliana will be returning very soon to the podcast, but we are going to continue doing these for the time being because these episodes have been, how you say, inspiring. Absolutely. Not a bad succession episode. This one might be one of the few shows that goes through its entire run without a single bad episode. I'm having trouble even naming one of those. I think Deadwood is the only one that comes to mind as a show I've seen without any bad episodes. Even Twin Peaks, which I love, my favorite show. In the second season, like when James leaves town and hooks up with that one older lady, things get, things get a little dicey for a while in Twin Peaks. This is, this is going to go down as just, a, I think, one, having the, one of the highest batting averages. I say that, and as soon as I say that, I know I have now cursed something horrible to happen in the final four episodes. We're going we're gonna to nosedive, and it's going to be all my fault. Listen, Emmett. Mm-hmm. I think that it's going to be one for the ages up there with Gossip Girl, the first Gossip Girl series. The, the, the original Gossip Girl, the first generation. <laughs> Degrassi, the previous generation. Yeah, you named all the good shows already, so I was like, what do I get to say? Uh, well, for those of you joining us for the first time, we will be talking about Succession Season 4. We are assuming that you have watched up to Episode 6, Living Plus. Uh, Otherwise, you've been living minus. Oh, God. It's had true, to, though. Had to get that joke out of the way quickly. Uh, Emmett, mm-hmm. for those listening in, tell us about yourself. What do you do? Well, I'm a Libra. No. Oh my God, you are. That is the most Libra thing to have been said on the podcast. <laughs> Pointing out that one is a Libra is such Libra energy, I'm told. Uh, so, yeah, I go by Poor Quentin. I host the Not A Cast podcast with our friend Manu, a.k.a. Manuclear Bomb. We are going through A Song of Ice and Fire, one chapter an episode, kind of like Chloe and Eliana are doing, but we're going through the books in order because we're sensible, sane people. Uh, and uh, I also do solo episodes on Star Wars and Lord of the Rings. Uh, next Lord of the Rings episode coming out is going to be on the post-Mount Doom chapter in Star Wars. I'm going to be kicking off the original trilogy soon with Manu, and those episodes are available for all of our $5 and above patrons over at patreon.com slash notacast, A-S-O-I-A-F. So you can also just find our free episodes, our free A Song of Ice and Fire episodes on any podcast app of your choice. And you can find me at Poor Quentin on Twitter, where I advertise the podcast and display my objectively correct opinions on all things. I just have to comment for the fans at home, a.k.a. me, mm-hmm. my new Star Wars episode. That's true. We're going to kick off the start of the first one with, with 3PO and R2, everyone's everyone's favorite characters. And I was thinking, you know, like, between me and Manu, which one is the 3PO and which one was the R2? And then I quickly realized we're both, we're both C-3PO. You are absolutely both C-3PO. That, that should just be our, our, like, our icon or advertising image for the podcast is just two 3PO's back and forth. <laughs> Well, I look forward to those as a Not A Cast patron. I will link below where you can find Emmett, Manu, 
and everything they're talking about in the details of this episode, please click, like, subscribe, comment, you know, stream, 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 living plus. Sacrifice your children. Who said that? Oh my God. We're going Egyptian on this episode of Succession, and I love that for us. Give your baby to Relore. Someone should have done that with Kendall, I swear. Uh, He would have been a sacrifice, but he probably would have chosen Connor instead. True. And Kendall himself has children, although you wouldn't know it. So Kendall's Remember the them? Stannis. Anyways, we'll come back to all this. <laughs> Kendall, uh, Kendall is Stannis and Roman as Renly does work as an AU, I think. Absolutely. Shiv is Robert? No, I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. Imagine the Baratheon sister. That would not be a life I would envy. Being, being, a, being a sister to Robert and Renly would be bad enough, but imagine being Stannis' sister. That's a nightmare. Stannis is very sister-coded. Oh my god, wait, Stannis, Stannis is, is Visenya, basically. Actually, there are moments. I don't think Stannis has quite the ass that Shiv does. Uh-huh. I don't think he's ever described that as quite as quite as swole. Otherwise, sure. Interesting, interesting. More to come on that throughout this episode. As always, you can find us discussing A Song of Ice and Fire, POV by POV, character chapter by chapter, which right now we will be embarking on Aeron. For our next episodes, we just finished up Victorian. Keep your ears and eyes peeled for those new episodes, as well as Sailor Moon, his Dark Materials show and books, and much, much more. So, more to come this summer. It's going to be a very Girls Gone Canon summer. I can't wait. What's more summer than the Greyjoys, I tell you? Ah, uh, yeah, we just want to get to the beach. Have some fun. Just like Aaron Greyjoy. He always loves getting to the beach and having fun there. Hey, like Kendall this episode, getting to the beach. That was a very damp, hair-coated scene at the end of the episode. (laughs) Done just in time. I really loved this episode. I liked last episode's pacing because it slowed us down for a minute, made us appreciate the finer succession life things. And this episode brought back a little bit more of that pacing while still keeping it I don't know, not slow, just like a really good pace. Agreed. I think it was a, a good mix of intimate and big picture stuff. I'm still annoyed that, that Justin Kirk, a.k.a. Jared Menken, a.k.a. Andy from Weeds, is just like a, a non-entity on the show. There is, there is, there is still a, a certain sloppiness about succession that I think is the flip side of the coin of what people like about it, which is the fly-by-the-seat-of-the-pants energy and how much it feels like the actors are, are shaping... Uh, the scripts they're being given, and the kind of the fly-on-the-wall camera style of it. And I think the flip side of that is occasionally it still it still gets a little sloppy with the secondary characters. But that's like, you know, that's what's not in the episode. Everything that's in the episode, I think, works really well. Yeah, it's hard. I don't want to be selfish because I'm like, you are wasting him. You have wasted Justin Kirk. But also, it is like you said, right? Like, they're putting in the best parts to give us the episode. We don't see the stuff unless you're a freak on the internet like I am. We don't see the stuff that doesn't go in, unless you watch the previews, like most of us. We don't see (laughs) the stuff that doesn't go in the season. So it's not really our place, but it's hard not to not want. People have compared succession to Arrested Development many times, and accurately. And one of my favorite parts of Arrested Development is the next time on Arrested Development are always scenes that do not happen. 100% of the time, it's scenes that do not happen, mostly plot points that don't pop up. A couple that do, but it's never anything you see. And uh, they did that on purpose, though, so that's a little different. But yeah, I mean, as you know, much as I uh, mourn uh, Justin Kirk, aka Andy from Weeds, just because I, I wish the political plot in Succession got a little more juice, given how important they frame it as being whenever they do bring it up. I can't think of anything from this episode I'd, I'd want to cut. You know what I mean? I can't mm-hmm. think of anything I'd want to remove so it could be in there. I think everything we get 
is is suits the characters real well and i think it's it's becoming a show more and more you just break down by character you know what i think though no what do you think chloe from girls gone canon i think emmett from not a cast syaf plus i think that jared menken must be one hell of a motherfucker and justin kirk must put on one hell of a motherfucking performance at the end of this season in order for them to say and justify he better episodes got to go he must be uh, and we'll get more into this very soon because you know there's a big party next episode kind of revolving around justin kirk's character you know the old election shit but i still don't think he's going to be in the episode it looks like matson's crashing the party Matson has replaced him basically as a character. They 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 felt they only had room for one of those two, and they went with the Scars Guard in the room. Well, and that's what happened with Brody last season. Also true, but that and that I was okay with just because Adrian Brody is obviously a movie star, and you're not going to get him forever. I was hoping hoping for a for a little more out of Justin Kirk, but that's but that's okay. I'll 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 forgive them. Yeah, it goes back to Lisa last season too, right? I really wanted more scenes with Lisa, the lawyer. That's true. That's mm-hmm. true. I think the thinking about the secondary characters, I think the one they handled well was Holly Hunter, yes. who has a character name, but it's it's just Holly Hunter, you know, national treasure. And I think she was well handled because she had a full arc. And when it was done, she left. And that's it. And that was she's, you know, much as I, I always love Holly Hunter, I don't want her back necessarily because I think her character arc was complete. She got seduced in, in, by the dark side of the force and then she walked away from it. And that's all you need. Yeah, the anti-Roy siblings. Yeah, 100%. I think uh, I liked the that Pierce dynamic being the, the more kind of liberal Hepburn Connecticut set in contrast to the Roys. I thought, I thought that was interesting. Laureen Scafaria, which, wow, I cannot believe Bo Burnham is so lucky as to call himself a partner of her because she has done some excellent work on Succession and other places. I didn't realize who directed this episode, like where I knew her work from uh, besides Succession, right? She did Too Much Birthday. Because, of course, watching this episode, it has Kendall Too Much Birthday vibes written all over it. And she also directed Nick and Nora's Infinite Playlist, which is one of my very underrated fave movies. Uh, The book was a very fun, like, YA, teeny bopper, underground music kind of book. And very fun. She did Hustlers Whip It. Uh... So she directed Honeymoon States, Too Much Birthday, and Living Plus, and all three are great episodes. Very excited and hope she gets... I don't know if she's going to have any other episodes this season, but excited to see Counting her other down. work. Yeah. I didn't know she did Hustlers, actually. That's great. Good for her. And yeah, I feel like Nick and Nora's got lost in like the, the Juno super bad late mm-hmm. aughts, uh, vaguely indie cycle across the universe, that whole like 07, 08 one. I think it just got, it got like lost in the the wave of those movies but uh, it was well directed so good for her and she actually she's in this episode she does a voice cameo in the opening scene the cold open of the director she's she's playing the director of the video that logan appears in that they're watching the voice that they hear you know telling logan what to do no one's favorite job and that's great i love that that just breaks the fourth wall that she's she's playing a director and that that's what this opening scene basically is it's showing you how succession is made behind the scenes it's showing you these characters as actors and as media figures who are shaping themselves 
uh, for the public. It's showing you, you know, what it's like to deal with Brian Cox and Jeremy Strong, which is not the easiest job in the world. Logan is talking. He's giving his little pitch uh, about about Living Plus, about the product. So the scene kind of sets up everything plot-wise to be carried through the episode and theme-wise because it's the it's the memory of Logan. It's the the graven image of Logan, the, the, the idea of him you're going to be worshipping forever. And he's talking about, like, you know, what a wonderful community Living Plus is going to be and how it's an extension of the Waystar family. But, you know, everything we know about Logan was that he was never one to actually hold up or value community or family as he should have. And we see that when he when he breaks character, so to speak, and snaps at the people directing him. God, you're all, you're all fucking useless. You're worse than my idiot kids. That's what, that's what he feels about community and family. And we just see Kendall kind of in the foreground watching it. And as he says, like, yeah, that's, that's a Valentine card, Valentine's card from Dad. That's, that's how we, we knew he loved us, at least he was talking to or about us. And it's, it's great, and it sets up just how literally big Logan is, that they're not just, like, watching him on a laptop screen or something. He's, they're watching him on a big, like, projector. He's, like, he's literally looming over them. He's literally larger than life even when he's dead. Cash out and fuck off. And he did. So he did. <laughs> and now there's nothing they can do but loop him over and over again. Yeah, that was a great recurring theme from the front of the episode to the very end with Roman that we'll come to later. Well, he'll come to later. Uh, sorry. <laughs> and, you know, starting it with his behavior and then having, having the echoes of his behavior through his children throughout the episode, the way Kendall and Roman treated those people at Waystar Studios, which this was our very first look, I think, at Waystar Studios over in Hollywood. You know how they do things, those Hollywood fucks, as Logan would say. It, it did not disappoint. It was very different, but it's interesting how they went in there and they're like, you're Hollywood. You could do anything. And Hollywood was like, please help us. We are suffering under the crumbling load of capitalism. And Kendall and Rome just like, treated them like fucking shit, right? Like, they're the most corrupt things at Waystar Studios Hollywood. Those two are. This part of the episode definitely resonated, uh, thinking about it, writing about it, recording about it, now that the WGA strike is going ahead. Definitely makes you think about the the strains that, that creative professionals work under when they're stuck in this, not just capitalist system, but this very specific financial wall street influenced uh shareholder driven system where it's not where making a profit is not enough because these studios are, are very profitable still but it's that you that, that the line has to constantly grow up and that you have to have you know like infinite growth or whatever it is tremendous growth whatever it is kendall says that greg makes fun of him for also all you need is infinite growth like that that mindset is so uh, so unrealistic not only is it unrealistic for any industry to live up to but it's got nothing to do with the actual work of a creative enterprise and uh kendall and roman just have nothing to contribute there and and that's you know that's the problem in, in real life i think with with uh, the money people at this level when it comes to creative industries is that they they think that they they think they're creative they, they think they can write and they think they can direct and they think that's just something anyone can do which is often part of the conversation when you get to a strike like this and it's just not true and unfortunately kendall roman and Greg really all have to kind of confront that in this episode. Yeah, they've never done a real laborious day of work in their lives at Waystar. Like, I'm very taken by that. Obviously, we don't see every moment these fictional characters are behind a screen uh, doing things. But like, and obviously, Kendall goes over numbers and figures out a plan. We see he does do some work, 
but I'm very taken in this episode by how many men I've met that are corporate EVPs and VPs and CFOs and how little work they do and how little they understand the minuscule parts of labor, right? Like, I think back to the Game of Thrones documentary that came out that was made on set during season eight and how, you know, you have a guy that's in charge of the fucking snow in Winterfell. Like, you have a guy in charge of the snow, Ned. Uh, It's even the smallest details and, like, so the writer's strike, you know, who's going to write on these scenes like, we need to redo these lines behind with ADR, We need to come in. This is ugly. This is an ugly, who's going to rewrite this entire scene? Uh, Succession has a little bit more of a liberal environment for, as you mentioned, you know, like they get a little improv, right? They get a little space and a little creativity, but not all sets have that, you know? And you think of it as a sliding scale money-wise, right? Like what sets have the money and what don't? It's just a labor issue. It's a people problem. It's a numbers game to them, but it's a people problem to everyone else. And they try to squeeze them out as much as they can, and they're uh, they're trying to pay people at only at day rates, and they're trying to you know remove residuals, and that these are all you know ongoing trends. But they've uh, they've accelerated of late, and I think this this episode definitely soaks that up. Yeah, who is more a part? of that than Kendall Roy himself pushing a production of a practical fake house set within a 12 to 16 hour time span, really, let's be real, next day production of a house being... Because this is Hollywood, right, he said? And let me me compliment you on your restraint for not saying, and who had a better story than Kendall the Broken? Because I saw that on your lips and it just barely didn't escape. (laughs) Listen, I had it very tamed. I don't know what you're saying. That line is back in its cage. Uh, the clouds. Kendall freaking out about the clouds is the metaphor, my man. The metaphor is there, right? That duality of Kendall, Logan, Roy. If the clouds aren't real, not the these are not the clouds, guys. These aren't so so crestfallen. Like, Dad, that's I wanted the other one for my birthday. Remember, I wrote it down what kind of video game I wanted, and you didn't get the right one. If the clouds aren't real, Emmett, what he's doing on that stage and what he's doing in life is no longer real. Do you understand that about Kendall? That is what that means. No real clouds, no real Kendall. Everything's broken, and he knows that. Like, once those clouds clear, Kendall knows that the bullshit's over. Once Matson buys the company. He doesn't fucking know what he's going to do with his life, how to fix it. He doesn't know how. All he knows is just jam it up, fuck it up. And deep down, it's just like him singing honesty, right? Ready to be crucified in front of his crowd and then deciding, oh, that's a little gauche. Maybe I won't do it after all. It's tacky. And then it's throughout, for me, the biggest thing this gave was the fact that he was able so willingly but also successfully to manipulate Logan's image, right, and and use his love which he does love his dad in a fucked up toxic way, uh, just like his dad loved him. But he was able to set it aside, beget his emotions, and put on a fucking show to use his dad's image and manipulate the crowd's love and respect of that man, as well as his quote-unquote love and respect of that man, right? Kendall's, I mean, it's reminding me in this episode, he's good. He's Actually, when he's on his A-game, he's good. He's good at manipulating. He's good at talking and talking shit and talking shit professionally. It was his dad and his manslaughter, really, uh, that that did this to him, that put him away inside. Like, when he's on, he's on. 
Tying it back to what I was saying earlier about their their kind of uh, boorish attempt to take control of creative things, one one consistent part of Ken's character all through his ups and downs that I think is great is that he just has terrible taste, just the worst taste in the world. You can see that with L to the OG. You can see it with that the, that gigantic sculpture of his mom's vagina, that clubhouse at his party. Those, those shoes that he knew were pretentious and then like compared himself to Bjork or whatever that was. It's, it's just all part of his, his overcompensation act. Since Ken's true personality is a shrinking little Mew Mew hermit crab, he has to pretend to be larger than life. And not only is that obviously fake, but everything he uses to be larger than life is just so tacky and ridiculous. And most importantly, never ever cool. And that's what puts people off about him, I think. It's not actually the drugs, because it sounds like Matson is even less sober than Ken, which is not something I thought was possible. It's the cringe. It's this, this, this palpable sense of embarrassment, which only becomes worse when Ken gets, you know, self-aware and realizes how silly he looks. Like, he's so easily crushed by Roman's uh, rejection uh, in, in this episode, and Roman's like, maybe we should not do this, and Ken's like, you think it's nuts? You think it's nuts? I thought it was cool, but, you know, he knows at some level, like he said in the Too Much Birthday episode about singing Honesty on the Cross, that this is you know, 12 layers of overdetermined master's degree hokum, that it's just, he's he's just cripplingly self-conscious, and the thing he wants most in the world is to be cool, and that's the one thing Kendall will never, ever be. Yeah, it's almost like when he chose it, he chose it because he's like, dad would hate this. And then he gets up there and he realizes, dad would hate this. And Roman is not doing much better. Like, they, they're they egging each other on throughout all of this. It's really standing out to me that each of them is like, no, this is good. No, our lies and the bad things we're doing are good things together. You're doing good, Kendall. Me too. Roman, in this episode specifically, I am also doing good. Um, someone need and Shiv tries to check them, as we'll talk about, but someone should check these two. We're used to one of them being down and the other one picking them back up. You know, Ken uh, uh, relapsed and then Roman went and got him. Or, uh, you know, Roman was upset about Kendall getting cut off at the end of season two, but Kendall was like, no, this is great, Roman, you're moving up, and he clearly... And he clearly sincerely meant it. But uh, this is a situation where they're both appearing to be on top of the world, but both crumbling from within. So really neither of them is willing to give up the ghost and admit to what's going on. So they, uh, they, neither of them can help each other. And Ken is, you know, he's the, the overcompensation mode is, is, was his entire story in season three, kind of climaxing at that birthday. And uh, Ken has moved past that in the sense that he's, he's given up the righteous crusade that was animating him in season three, the knights on horseback, as he told his dad, that's gone. But he still can't get over the just the self-awareness of how fake all of it is. Like you say, it's just gauche, and he just he can't handle that even as he does it. And it's so telling that the idealized self-image he keeps trying to create is always it's never it's never about how 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 sexy and awesome he is. Like he acts like that, but the imagery is also is always like the clubhouse or the perfect clouds over a little house, which is like, that's that's the drawing, the stereotypical like picture you make in kindergarten, is little clouds over a little house. He's always trying to get back to the womb and start over, which is why all the, the water imagery keeps cropping up at certain structurally important moments in his story. So of course, he's, he's good at selling immortality. As Tom says, he just sold eternal life. That's what he wants. And that's also what any hero wants, whether of the classical or tragic variety. That's always the thing you're running up against, is the one enemy you can't beat is, is aging and death, as they've just been reminded. 
And so you see Kendall and Roman and Greg spend the whole episode running up against the, the brick wall of reality that they really just can't make shit up and expect the world to bend to their will. Like Roman finds it out with Jerry when Jerry's trying to once again explain to him how it actually works to run a company like this that Roman refuses to internalize. We see in that great little scene in the hallway with Ken and Carl where Carl just says, look, I've been around long enough to know when numbers smell bad. And if you try to put me up there to sell, you know, month-old fish, I'm not going to do it for you. I'm going to sell you out. And Ken, you know, when we were watching the episode the first time, I thought Ken was going to turn on Carl somehow in that moment. But it looks like maybe that'll pay off later. But it looks like Ken just accepts that Carl had him over the, had him over the fucking fire there. And we see it in the, that hilarious scene with Greg and the video editor when Greg is just like, yeah, just make Logan say a completely different thing than the thing he says. And the editor, in a way that reminded me a lot of Jerry, just says to Greg, I can't, it's not that I don't want to do that or I'm not good enough to do that. It, you are describing a fairy tale. That's not how this works. And Greg just like says, stop. No, I don't want to hear that. I don't want, I'm going to get in trouble, Mr. Snippy Snip. And they just, it's not, it's not that they have a better plan. It's not that they've seen their plan and their plan is better. It's that, like what Kendall says, the, the rule is that you can't say no. And I like he says that like it's a fun party trick. When it really, when it, what it really is is just, is just tyranny in the most infantile, childish form. That's just, that's just how they are. I'm very taken by the Jerry and the Frank in this episode, right? The Jerry and the Frank scenes playing very close to one another, too, in the episode itself was a really great effect to see both of them call the other brother out and to see how they crumble, right? And Kendall is met with nothing but applause to everything he does here. I was holding my breath with you the entire time. I was like, how is Kendall Roy gonna fuck this up when it was Roman that fucked it up, you know? And Kendall actually kind of sparklingly succeeded? Yeah, we'll get to that. But yeah, Rome is, you know, talking him down beforehand with that little it's not you, it's me talk that he's used to giving to Ken. And, you know, Shiv talks about his harebrained schemes and she has this little line about the he's got the gleam in his eye, uh, which I think is is Shiv's way of saying without saying that she's worried he might be might be back on the drugs, which I think is a kind of implicit question in this episode about when whether Kendall is off the wagon. I'm not sure, you know, I think it's when he starts saying like, can people really live 10, 20, 30, 40, 50 years more? Like that is that is the kind of thing you say when you're on coke. But that might just be Kendall's personality at this point. What do you think? Yeah, I give pause to thinking he's back on the wagon. Because I do think and this is going back to season one, when we meet him, he's trying. Right, like he's trying really hard. He's not off off the wagon. He's really trying to get his shit back together. But he still goes through a huge fit of mania, right, throughout the entire first season. And to me, I feel like he usually actually doesn't use until there's a fall. So to me, I'm thinking he's in a fit of mania. However, to me, that also means there is a fall coming because we still have four episodes left. So what happens with that fall, and does he start using? I hope he does not, and I don't necessarily wish to constantly judge his character on where he is on the wagon or not, but I worry that it will be a crashing sensation. He'll just be a, the, my favorite moment in Scarface when, when Tony Montana near the end just looks at the mountain-sized pile of cocaine on his desk and just rubs his neck and goes, we, we, we gotta get organized here. <laughs> That's just, that's going to be Kendall's last scene. We got to, we got to get organized here. Yeah, I mean, that's the other thing is worse. What if he doesn't crash? No. 
<laughs> then there's no stopping him. That's trouble. <laughs> I hope for the sake of the earth he does. Uh, yeah, me too. I want to watch that shit. <laughs> Speaking of shit shows, Rome and Roy. <sighs> wow. That was... I mean, he took the wheel and he crashed it in the first time and then he could still drive it, so he backed it up and he took the wheel and he crashed it again even harder. I don't... Holy shit, he shit the bag. Uh, he lost his shit. He, he, he's an emotional meltdown on wheels in this episode. Uh, he's going to be left with the former bones of this company with Kendall, right? And that's all they're going to have left in, like, maybe some right-wing fucking Nazi propaganda. And that's what they're going to have at the end of the day. They're going to have nothing. They're going to rail this company so thin, dry it the fuck out. Uh, the lying... Uh, the fact that Roman, you know, Roman acts like a little boy caught in the middle of wrongdoing throughout most of the episode. He fires Jerry and Joy, and then he goes to Ken, and he's like, and then they were mean, and it's like, you know, I said maybe I should let you go, so that might be a problem, but I think I should let them go. What do you think, Kendall? And Kendall's like, yeah, you should just kick them out of the treehouse, Roman, forever and ever. And Girls are gross. They smell. Yeah. Uh, it, it's very juvenile the fucking up and asking for permission after like i mean i do that all the time at work but like i get paid for that this is wow all of this behavior from roman and it's it's funny because i was starting to really i was starting to kind of like roman a lot more than i used to again i'm not a roman roy hater i just never connected with that baby sibling kind of energy like that from him and he proved himself wrong today back on it i'm like roman you fucked it. My God, my boy. Well, it's always been the tension with Roman that he does have better primal business instincts than Shiv, who has really no experience in the private sector. And he has better instinct and, and I think he has and I think he has better instincts than Ken, who again has just the worst taste on planet Earth. But the problem is that Roman has zero idea about how to execute. Less than zero. He has he has negative idea about how to execute. I always go back to that that one scene. I forget what season it is, I, where, where both Kendall and Roman are called into the office, and Roman calls Jerry in a panic, like, oh, Ken's in a room with, with guys doing stuff, help! And she's like, well, why don't you do stuff? And, like, he doesn't know how. He doesn't know the nuts and bolts of what's actually required to do this job. Like, he also said in, a, in an earlier season, I'm, I'm, I'm dumb, but I'm smart. He, he doesn't have the attention span or the work ethic to actually run this place. He would make for a great figurehead, I think. He would make, I think, for a great figurehead, Except when he does shit like flip out on Matson, and then Joy Palmer, and then Jerry. And it's always just about the same thing. It's about not being taken seriously. It's about you're not listening to me, as he says. You, you, you have to believe in me. And, you know, anyone who has to say I am the king is no true king. And Roman is, is just, I think, even more than Ken, just, just tangibly expressing his own self-doubts and projecting them onto everyone else. And I'm not saying this ironically or to be a bitch. He's too emotional. He's too emotionally involved in this business. He is a child. He is like, like when I was a kid, my dad had this great car. It was a Chevy Jimmy. It was like kind of like a cross between a truck SUV car kind of thing. It was burgundy or maybe it was a blazer, whatever the fuck it was. It was a Chevrolet truck thingy and I loved it and he got rid of it and Emmett, I cried. I cried. I was seven years old crying over a fucking car and cars hadn't even been released yet. Okay. I should have written that. Damn. Um, as a seven-year-old. But like, 
I sobbed. I sobbed over this car. I was like, I had so many good times riding in it on the way to my grandparents' house. Okay, like I was seven. This is where I like I pull back the curtain and we have the car. <laughs> oh my god, what? Guess what, Chloe? Right over here. <laughs> oh my god, look under your chairs. It's the winter winner. I wondered why my chair was so big and on top of a car. But I was seven. And that's Roman with this fucking company. Like, he is so emotionally charged. And that's where Kendall's a killer, right? Kendall has obviously in this episode been able to separate and combine his feelings for his dad. And, I mean, that moment when he is looking at Jerry and his eyes, like that look in Roman's eyes that he gets, that, like, the look where Jerry even knows she's like, oh, no, 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 in horror. When he decides, oh, I can fire Jerry now because I don't want to deal with my problems ever again. Uh, it's pretty rough, right? Jerry whispers to herself at one point, the only defense she can have in, in front of this, she's faced with the guy that almost got her fired the first time for sending her pictures of his penis, uh, and now he can actually fire her? That's a horror show. Like, that's a horror movie. In any regular world, that would be a horror movie for a woman to go to work with. Uh, and... She whispers to herself her only defense she even can have for herself when she realizes what's happening. I'm good at my job. And she is. I mean, she went there on a whim to almost help him, right? Like, it was maternal and a little uh, mean and cold because their relationship's not great right now. But she still cares about him. And she still was there to say, you can't do this. Like, you're gonna fuck it if you do this behavior. Like, this is messy. This is a mess to clean up. Yeah, she, she's almost warning him out of her heart for that, but also it harkens back to Connor's wedding. Yeah, I think he, that's, that's why I think she loses her temper, understandably, with him quicker than she normally does, is because of that scene. Yeah, I mean, this is the same scene, but the opposite way, right? Like, mm -hmm. she's coming to him to give him a warning of what's going to happen to him for behaving in this way, where he went to her to give her a warning that she misconstrued and took totally personally and was a bitch to him about, and now he's being a bitch to her about it in a really horrible way because he holds more power than her now. <laughs> right, because in, in, in between those two scenes, Logan died. Yeah, I mean, his implosion was destined, right? He was in total denial about Logan's entire health. Like, the whole entire show so far, for a whole year, he has been in denial about Logan losing... His brain, his body, everything, losing his life eventually. And in the the episode, you know, that he dies, he said, like, oh, I'm fine. The next episode, oh, I'm fine. We'll see what happens. Well, this is what happens. His grief is drowning him. And we even see it at Roman's attachment at the end of the episode, right? To come back to what you brought up with Logan at the front, Ro Roman at the end. Rogan, I was about to go Joe Rogan, Joe Ro, Ro, Ro. Uh, Roman at the end, right? He is getting off and getting sad via his attachment to degradation from his father. He can't put it down. Yep, that's, I mean, everything in the, in Roman's world, I think, you know, the way everything for Ken becomes an addiction, everything for Roman becomes a fetish, no matter how painful it is, or even especially how painful it is. Emmett, I saved my favorite sibling. <laughs> For last, I'm sorry. Did Connor? you see this coming? Yeah, Connor. We didn't get Con. Who? Again. I know. Too many characters. Too too much birthday, too many characters on succession. That's a mood. Even Connor? Like, and Willa? Who? Are you telling me that I want... The rabbit? 
Oh my god. Oh my god, the rabbit has gotten more screen time than Connor in season four? I thought we fed Bagel to that bitch. Bagel is a good name for a rabbit. That's all I'm going to say about it. Too much bagel. No such thing. Let's talk about Shiv. Sure. <laughs> Poor Emmett. Noted Shiv deal with her. I, I, I'm very curious to hear what went through your brain before you landed on that one. Tolerator. Noted Shivroy tolerator <laughs> Emmett. <laughs> I love Shiv. I just I think in some ways she is the she is the most transparent of of, of the bunch. And uh so she's easy to see through. Mm. Interesting. Interesting. I've insulted Chloe Jim's real friend, Shivroy. Shiv's so relatable in this episode. She's V vulnerable. I gotta pull out her outfit too, right? Like for two and a half, three seasons, maybe four seasons, really. We have seen nothing but Shiv Roy covered in a turtleneck or a sweater that does not show off her titties. Like, most of the time, besides formal occasions, today, Shiv Roy's titties were out. They were there. Hallelujah. Amen. I had to pull that one out of the holster. It was like, there's no neck coverage. She's at Waystar with no turtleneck. That's big. That's like, even just, I mean base symbolism right like what once strangled her is gone she sits at her father's seat with no turtleneck on titties out she's girl failing like the best of us Emmett. i'm so happy about this and that said uh immediately becomes relatable with her grief crying who hasn't done a little crying at work in their time anyone have you done a little crying at work of course i just don't usually schedule it for 3 30 in room 224 well, that's the impressive part. That's what happens when you have power and you are a woman. You know, you get to hide your vulnerability in new, fun ways. Like crying in a room that your husband that you're estranged from and his little boyfriend are going to walk into and see you at your most vulnerable. Not so little. Yeah, in your mess of hormones. Grieving about your dead asshole abusive father and your knucklehead brothers. Oh, God. Yeah, that was a horror situation, right? Like, she's, like, microdosing her sadness in 15-minute increments <laughs> with five minutes for concealer. The bell goes off, <sighs> of course. I mean, I felt for Shiv here. You know, one of the biggest reasons I was really mad my boss moved my office to an office with, like, several other people was that I couldn't cry at my cubicle anymore. And I know that sounds crazy, but when, when things get frustrating, like, now I have to leave the room to go get upset. <sighs> do a little stroll that adds a whole part to your day and what if others saw you i mean here's the deal that's vulnerable you can't be a bitch crying at work in bitchness and you're also prego so now you're gonna have a baby too that's two negatives like it doesn't work like a double negative positive like it works like a negative 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 it's bad it's bad as a business person it's bad that's very good business math you just did there thank you ask kendall it all adds up Kendall knows all about numbers. <laughs> and how they add. Four, eight, two. He's got all of them. All the numbers. He's like, someone will pay it to us. Shiv and Matson launches our episode. Uh, and holy shit, dude. He wants her because she doesn't want him outwardly. He wants her. Also because of the money. But he wants her. All of the above. It was very sexy. I was like, oh, is this the final boss for Shiv? Because he... Girl, he wants her. It makes sense. He's, he's the anti-Tom in terms of personality, background, 
what he wants out of all this. You know, I think about Tom making fun of Greg for wearing the wrong shoes, and then Mattson strolls onto the plane with no shoes. Ooh. I mean, if you asked Tom to come up with a guy he would be afraid to lose Shiv to, I think he'd give you a sketch artist drawing of Mattson. He's a more potent challenge than Nate. Remember Nate, Gil's sidekick? Because for all that he and Shiv had their own sexy chemistry going on, he, he fundamentally represented her past. He was everything that she did before the show started. And Matson represents her future, or her potential future, if she goes all in on the business side of things and tries to save her brothers from crashing and burning, as she attempts to in this episode. For her, she does view it that way, right? Like, this is her lifeline to protect her stupid big brothers, but also, for them, it's a betrayal, right? Like, it's the complete opposite. I find that so fascinating. That's like the duality of women and Shiv, and I really love Shiv Roy for doing that. <laughs> I'm sorry. I do love Shiv Roy for doing that. Um... And it's interesting when you bring Nate up, like, Nate and Tom are very similar characters in a lot of aspects, right? They are both smitten and wowed by Shiv, her power, her dad's power, uh, her dad's company's power, the money that comes with her name, but also, like, Shiv herself, because she is kind of a force of nature, right? She's very, what at her happiest and at her not most depressed, she is vivacious, she's ferocious, she's smart, she's biting, Huh? <laughs> She's sharp. And both of them are kind of wowed by her in many ways. Tom and Nate are not unlike one another. Like, they are both little slime balls that are turned on by her power. So it's interesting that she goes for both those types. Uh, and maybe it comes back and harkens back to what her dad said during family therapy. Da, 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 da. But I don't know. They're, they're also easier than big key assholes like Matson, right? Like they're low key assholes. He's a big key asshole. He's a huge prick uh, who harasses you with blood banks, right? Frozen blood banks monthly. And everything about, you know, Shiv and Matson and that excitement. I mean, there's that excitement you get when you meet someone new, sexy or whatever, and you start talking to them and your body's on fire and you're like, wow, my vagina. But I don't see her being like that with Matson, right? He's more of a, a conflicting annoyance of she's like, what do I do? What do I do with this guy? He doesn't even know what to do with him, but what do I do with this guy? The opposite of Shiv and Matson, of course, is Shiv and Tom, though, in this episode. And I say this, you know, only one person in the universe, actually many people in the universe, could watch Succession. And watch Shiv and Tom in this episode and be like, that was so romantic. This is the most romantic scene. But it was that. Like, it was very vulnerable and intimate between the two of those assholes with Tom saying to her, like, hey, I admit it. I love money, bitch. I love you, but I loved money first. You came after the money with the money. Uh, and admitting that they're both kind of garbage, right? And one moment and Shiv saying to him, well... I'd follow you anywhere for love, Tom Wamscans, in response to him saying, what if we just move to a trailer park? Uh, because the same drama and the same life would probably ensue in a different scale. And even after that, uh, they meet up right at the investor partying. First of all, Shiv's titties, again, out. Second thing of the episode, she's you vulnerable. You noticed this more than I did. Might yes, impressive. I was looking for them. And Oh, were you now? Well, not hard to look for. Uh, they're there. The they... rest of Chloe was hard. That wasn't hard. <laughs> they were out, though. Like, this is not my fault. They were out. This is not for tears or my fault. They were Ooh. out, like, literally showing how vulnerable she is, right? Like, her outfit, even at the investors, all in white with that black lining and see-through a little bit, especially in the back and the front. And then her titties all, like, carefully placed. Like, 
Shiv was vulnerable. Her heart was on display. She was like, Tom, is this real? And he was all like, pride and prejudice. Yes, it is, Shiv. Kiss, kiss, kiss. And they even start at this party, they start comparing pains, right, about their past pains. We get a little of Shiv's background, finally, because we've been waiting a little bit for this backstory of what happened when they met one another when she was so down. And we learn about the quote-unquote Washington situation and TK, TK being implied to be one of her past lovers who was quote-unquote the one until she then got, you know, brokenhearted by TK. I'm guessing TK dumped the shit out of her. Tom was there to pick up the pieces, right? So there was a little bit of an implied story there in the Washington situation, and Tom mentions a Mary, and they kind of, like, they emotionally try to outpain one another and be like, I was more fucked up before I met you. No, I was more fucked up before I met you. Uh, it's a contest to see who fixed slash ruined who. Yeah. Who needs the other one more? Who got the most out of it? A contest to see who inflicted more pain on one another, you could say. You Unlike only, you Bitey. Only, you can only lose that fight. Yeah, I love I love that Tom honestly points out the material foundation to their relationship. Like, if she wasn't a Roy, they wouldn't be here. They wouldn't be having this conversation. And yeah, he says, like, oh, am I, am I being shallow? Okay, you can. You, you, you give, it, give, it, give everything up for love. She wouldn't do it. And yeah, I love I love Bitey. I love that, that little moment following up on the, the gravel kicking and ear boxing from last week. Just those, those little moments of physical intimacy revealing how much Aww. how much they still want each other and how just how comfortable they are still with each other, even if it's in all cases filtered through violence, which is again like a childish thing, like you pull someone's hair or throw something at them if you have a crush on them. But you know, it, it raises the question of how long they can stay bit into each other like how much pain can you take especially if you start associating it with love and it reminds me of uh, of uh, the ritual of chewed from us from stephen king's it uh, the of course any opportunity to bring up it the kids read about how tibetan monks would confront a talus which is a, a magical being that can transform into what you most fear which is just what it does in it and uh, you'd have the the monk would bite into the talus's tongue and it would let the talus bite into their tongue, which just like uh, Carl says to Kendall, you have my dick in your hand, but I have yours in mine. Same idea. And then how it goes is the, the monk and the talus, while they're biting, biting into each other's tongues, would still somehow manage to tell riddles, and whoever laughed first would lose the contest, and if the, the monk won, then the talus would be banished for 100 years, and if the talus won, then he'd get to eat the monk's soul, or, you know, whatever it is uh, monsters do. Uh, and the, you know, question is with Tom and Shiv, which, which, which one is the monk, and which one is the monster? I think you could argue that one either way. It's gay chicken, but smarter. Exactly. See, it didn't need 1,200 pages. You could have just written that. Yeah, gay chicken, but smarter. And let's be real, Shiv loses. Shiv cares more. Even though in the, the behind-the-scenes stuff, it was, it was uh, Matthew McFadden who was, was more wounded <laughs> and by, by the actual teeth. And yeah, and, and Stephen King based that the ritual of chewed in it on the real spiritual practice of chode in Tibetan Buddhism, which is, is, is called cutting through. Uh, that's what it translates as. Uh, you can, and you go through song and prayer and meditation just to rid yourself of, of all ego attachments. And that's the kind of thing where I'm like, that's what Tom is saying to Shiv. Like, we couldn't do that for each other. We couldn't get rid of our attachments, our possessions, our, our desires, our greed for each other. We can't do it. Like, that... Because all that material stuff and all that ambition is part of our relationship. It's not something that's layered on top of another relationship we had first. It's part of it. Yeah, and it circles back at the end for them, right? Uh, I totally give graces to how wonderful Jeremy Strong's, finally, his beautiful sea 
entrance, right? Like as Kendall, like that was on Kendall's terms that was lit up by Kendall. That was Kendall getting to choose to go into that sea himself, baptized, reborn, as we'll talk about. But in the car with Shiv, she tells him, you know, like, hey, this is strictly, you know, you're, you're here as my confidant slash consultant. And Tom says, yeah, but I can't help it if I find strategy sexy. And even before they played Bitey, Shiv gives Tom's ass a very long, hard look. It's a very important look. Go back. You won't miss it. Just scroll on back in the episode to that part. She looks at him here with that same eye and the music. The swell of strings, uh, the theme that kind of plays here, it's gorgeous as it plays between the Shiv and Tom scene and the Kendall scene. Uh, it, it has kind of that beautiful theme that's almost like Shiv and Tom's wedding theme that we hear throughout the entire series, that swell of strings, and it resolves kind of in a major way instead of a minor way, which gives it that hopeful leap and that hopeful kind of push in your heart as you hear it going between, again, them and Kendall. And it's a little hope. It's almost hopeful against those two scenes. It's their little relationship theme, and there's almost a bud of hope blossoming beneath. But now Shiv has to choose what life she wants. Living Plus, the main event, this was wild. This was Kendall's biggest yet. Uh, I don't know how he pulled it off. It was insane. And it embodies their entire issue, right? If they would let go of their fucking dad... They would, they'd have it all right now. They'd be rich. They could go find their fucking purpose. Let the fuck go of him. Oh my God. Nope, they have to, they have to keep him alive like Walt Disney's frozen head, just like Roman keeping him on a loop, like we were saying earlier. It's, it's pretending he's still alive and not aging, and maybe they can do the same for themselves. Yeah, that idea of being able to buy immortality, to buy life, the rich too, right? Or the, the, what's existing, what's left on that iceberg of the middle class. Uh, realistically, they're being sold everything they already have or can already afford in their own confines, though. And that was disgusting, but also real meta to the kids, because Roman and Ken can find their escape outside of Living Plus. They have the money and the means to set up a life that they could live plus. And... I don't know, it's just like already a chore to keep my relatives off Fox News, right? Like, that's easy. That's the easiest thing. Get them to watch ATN. Score. Easy. Give them a home that they're going to buy and live in until they die somewhere somewhat nice or somewhere you can tell them it's nice. You know, like Florida, we can trick people into that being nice, okay? That can be tricked into nice. There's palm trees there. Uh, and then, you know, you just fill them with that great sense that they're victims. Feed them specially curated content telling them that they're the righteous ones that are going to inherit the earth. Uh, put them in that paradise with normal amenities that they can totally afford on their own, probably for cheaper, without paying Waystar Royco for it. There's nothing but margin in the end, especially when they die, considering I'm sure that timeshare is going to have contractual limits to it that they must keep paying on, or their estate must pay on or sell on. It reminds you a little bit of Gemstones, uh, Righteous Gemstones last sure. season with that resort and that lie being sold under Christianity in the promised world, Eden. Yeah, this is, this is the funniest thing. Obviously, there was a satire earlier with the, the hundred or whatever it was at the beginning of the season, but this is a lot more pointed and specific. It reminds me of, uh, of the Disney villages, the kind of hermetic little worlds they have for their people at, at Golden Oaks and, and Story Living, uh, the villages, the retirement community in Florida— 
Uh, it reminds me of their, specifically their promise of being able to extend your life by 10, 20, 30, 40, 50 years. As many people pointed out, is a nod to Elizabeth Holmes, the fraudster in her company Theranos, that promised to be able to tell so much about you and cure diseases from just like a couple drops of your blood. And thinking about it in terms of uh, the kind of the, the, the corporate world and uh, the kind of the, the Disneyification of things like that, it reminds me a lot of uh, Scorsese movies. Uh, the kind of the, if you look back at his gangster movies, which are often criticized on very kind of shallow grounds of glorifying the people in like Casino or Goodfellas. And I think if you look at them in context with something like Wolf of Wall Street that he also made, it becomes clear that he's what he's talking about isn't that gangsters were secretly good guys. It's that they had a they had a face and a, this this kind of authentic cultural grounding. They were from somewhere that they cared about, and that what replaced them was the corporate world that Ken and Roman exist in, who are also gangsters but exist on a much larger scale and have no grounding in anything at all and are essentially faceless. And there's a great bit at the the end of Casino, because Casino is not just about the mobs running Vegas, but about the end of the mobs running Vegas. And at one point, Joe Pesci says, that was the last time street guys like us were given anything so valuable, ever. And at the end of Casino, uh, the main character, Robert De Niro in voiceover, uh, talks about how uh, what really killed them was not just that the mob lost, is that what, what replaced them was Disney. And what replaced <laughs> them was this kind of very sanitized Disneyland approach to Las Vegas, and he says that how how the the next generation, the corporate generation that took over the casinos, would financed their money was junk bonds. And he says that over the picture of the the Sphinx in Vegas. So you got this just this, this great connection of of the of, of the, the gangster ethos and corporate money and that desire to be a pharaoh to live forever, like Kendall is talking about. That's really the kind of the mania that I think this particular class of gangster uh, uh, took away from everything they did. This is what they took away from Logan. And, uh, of course, Matson has another comparison that he liked to make on Twitter when he, he wrote uh, Dodderick Mokhtfry, as they bring up at one point, and that is a reference to Arbeit Mokhtfry, also known as a work makes one free in German, which was a slogan over the entrance of Auschwitz and other concentration camps, a line that many people point to as this kind of, this kind of grim proof that what the the Holocaust with the final solution in the Nazi project was about was uh, not just bigotry, although it, of course, was that, but also bigotry in service of a very clear understanding of capital and labor and what the relationship between those things should be. And that, you know, in Matson's own horrible prankster, I just like, are, are you shocked kind of way, that is, a, that is a viable connection to bring up about the kind of stuff that, that the Roys get up to. And uh, Otto Friedrich, the, the novelist and historian, was writing, he wrote about SS General Theodore Eich, who came up with the slogan. And what he said about it is, he seems to not have intended it as mockery, nor even to have intended it literally as a, a false promise that those who worked to exhaustion would eventually be released, but rather as a kind of mystical declaration that self-sacrifice in the form of endless labor does in itself bring a kind of spiritual freedom. And that that is the kind of thing that you can see animating something like Waystar Royco. And I think that kind of political brand in general is this, this spiritual belief in their own hoarding of wealth as a kind of not just monetary economic good, but as this kind of defiance of death, which is everything that Kendall is talking about here. Yeah, what was it that Logan used to say above the fourth, nothing above the fourth floor, right? And all of his different races and creeds that you would never see. Blacks, Jews, and women specifically. Yep, specifically. And uh, and not just that, but then kind of that fucking horrible regret for Shiv 
right? Because she's the one that inspired him. She called him right before and was like, what? You don't really like, you know, like greenies and concentration camps? And then he took it and he ran with it. And she calls him immediately and she tries to walk it back. And he's like, what? Wait, do you hate them or not? Less German. Right. Well, and Kendall himself says, like, we're, we're just hooking these old people up to steal their money while we keep them hooked on content. Yeah, some pretty lively Florida plus Fox News shit going on in this thing. I'm Absolutely. just putting it out there. Like I was like, immediately, I'm like, that's the thing is like Fox News, once it puts its daggers in your loved one, it's over. Well, that's, it's, a, it's a, a machine that convinces you everyone else is lying to you, which is a, a very potent force. And Ken, that's, ultimately, ironically, Matson jumping in is what saves ken because ken starts off in deep deep cringe territory even by ken's standards everyone watching is worried he's about to fall apart he's got the thing like uh like uh richard attenborough has in jurassic park where he's talking to himself on the screen and it's just so corny and goofy what what kendall's doing with logan and it's just so it's just too earnest again classic kendall just too self-aware and it's the very meta moment with Shiv saying that she can't watch. It's too painful. But then Rome's like, nah, you love it, which is exactly, you know, what you're doing when you watch the episode. And then Matson puts him in a corner, but, but Ken manages to wriggle his way out of it. It's, it's very similar to what he did uh, in front of Gil in Congress when Gil was putting his father up against the wall. That's, Ken was able to, uh, like in boxing, was just able to kind of, kind of bounce out of his corner with more momentum. Yeah, it's a flirt at first. It's a flounder. Like you hear the audience kind of give him a giggle. Here and they're like, okay, maybe, okay, maybe we're going to give it to you. Uh, and at the top of the episode, Matson is described by the old guard. He's described as a genius, which means he's allowed to do whatever he wants, right? As Kendall and Rome are like, it's well, just he was Matson being Matson. Yeah, it's just Matson being an evil genius, but also brilliant. Uh, he's allowed to do that. And you start off with everyone so mad at Kendall, but the moment he leaves the stage, everyone says, oh, Kendall, you're so smart. You're so brilliant. And I mean, at the end of the episode, he's spinning gold. He's turning a shit wild invasive idea into a dollar killer, right? Like this is just like dollar signs in your investor's eyes, dollar signs in the shareholder's eyes. As you said, just like with Congress, he trips into success here. His magic is making something in the face of nothing. And he turns it into a huge margin right there. Everybody sees the money. Uh, because that's the thing is, like, I saw some interesting debate of people like, is this ethical or not? Like, the numbers he went up there were really not real. And I'm like, this is the discovery phase of a project. Nothing's real during the discovery. You know how many times I get forecasts from a customer that it, like, proved to be, like, negative 75% real? Nothing's real. Business is all made up, and so is this. And he proves that it is, and he piques the interest, secures his bag, Right there, secures that they aren't going to vote him out as CEO. He had this brilliant idea of capturing all our old people and feeding them propaganda. Yeah, it's kind of brilliant, like you said with the Congress, just making those dollar signs appear out of nothing, making that witch hunt disappear into nothing. But it, it's it only happens because Matson messed up and intervened. And if Matson hadn't done that, I think Kendall might have broken down on that stage because that's how Ken works. He thrives on the opposition. He needs something to push against. That's how he defines himself. When you leave him alone with his own devices, he just, he honestly does not know who he is or, or what he wants. And that's what we're left with at the end with his little rebirth scene in the ocean. And, you know, it, it some, you know, felt kind of cleansing and he had a little smile on his face, but it felt, it still felt ambiguous to me. Like, yeah, he's, he's definitely in a better position than Roman at this point, but what comes next? Where is he headed? You know, Emmett, 
I've heard said that pride goeth before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. Part of me is like, is Kendall going to fall so hard on his face? That's one way. But also part of me, the evil or better part of me that's kind of sexier, is sitting here like, yes, yes, keep going, Kendall. World domination. Because I, I think it comes back to kind of what you said about Mad Men that I've never watched. Where his ending is, you know, he like all he's seeing in his head. While outside, he's like wellness, relaxation. Yoga. Yoga. But inside, he's like, buy, sell, buy, sell, gremlin style. I mean, worse is Kendall achieving everything. Achieving Kendall domination here, right? Like, Waystar domination wins, defeats Matson, buys PGM, owns all the news waves. But all he has left at the same time is like, a Jared Menken propaganda site with Ravenhead and like uh, that's not a win right at the end for Shiv you know you look at what Shiv wants she's like we could get rid of ATN which is horrible we could buy PGN we could give a fair balanced way in a possible world where we could hire journalists and let them tell stories but tell the news and tell the truth and get people to see shit and then you have Roman who doesn't fucking know what to do and he wants his daddy and then you have Ken who's like I could save dad's greatest vision and turn it into something better and emptier. Uh, there's a lot that could happen here. End of season in the next four apps. I mentioned Scarface and both the, the 80s Scarface with Al Pacino and the, the 30s uh, Scarface that it's uh, kind of semi-remake of. They both have the, the, big, the big globe sculpture with the world is yours. That, that is the, kind of the big symbol for both of them. And that's, I think, that, that, you know, an ironic symbol for both of them because they both die. I guess double spoilers for Scarface. Uh, and yeah, similar, I think, to Ken, even if he doesn't literally die. I think it'll be a similar idea. Kill the boy. Let the man be born. The killer be born, if you will. Blah. Emmett, thank you for breaking down this episode with me. I look forward to coming back for the party next week that Matson crashes. Looks like a blast. I guess crashes. The dad invited him. He's dead, but whatever. Uh... Once more, with feeling, can you tell us where the fuck to find you on the internet, where to subscribe? You can find me at Poor Quentin on Twitter, and you can find the Not A Cast podcast on your podcast app of choice. And check out our Patreon at patreon.com slash notacast, A-S-O-I-A-F, where our patrons get early access, exclusive episodes, and a bunch more benefits. Yes, linked below. Get on there. Subscribe. Buy, sell, buy, sell. And... Uh, hey, our Patreon is on pause. We will resume from that pause in June. If you sign up now, you will get charged, but we'll appreciate you immensely. We're on a bit of a pause. Eliana's traveling the globe, doing some shit, getting some shit done. Until then, find us over at patreon.com slash girlsgonecanon, where you can join various tiers with various perks. You can read all about it right there. And if you just want to subscribe to us, Go find a podcast platform that you love, whether that's Spotify, Google Play, iTunes, Stitcher, Acast, Audible, Amazon, whatever you want to fucking download. Go, go there. Like, comment, give a review if you want. Eliana might like that. She loves a good review or comment. And we will be back to break down the next episode of Succession. It's going to be a party crash in time. Tune in then, and we'll see you then. As always, I've been your host, Chloe. And my name is not Eliana, and I am not arithmetic. Oh my god, he's Emmett. Thanks. See you next week.